Dear Harrison, do you remember the last time you heard a train? And I don't mean like a subway. I mean like a proper train. You hear them here in Vermont sometimes. I notice them especially in late summer. For some reason, that's the time of year when the whistle carries through the hills and it sounds so haunting. I can't think of another sound that's perfectly all at once the sound of something arriving and of something slipping away. I heard one the other day, and it reminded me of this sheaf of papers typed on a typewriter decades ago that I found in a cabinet in an old, old house I was living in last winter. So I'm going to read them now. Summer Journey 50 Years Ago We're at the farm. Another year has elapsed and it's vacation time again. Bill has gone to the airport to meet our two grown-up nieces, my sister Lucy's daughters. I sit alone on the stone steps of the old farmhouse and look out at the mountains. Their outline against the sunset sky is so familiar. The floodgates are open to a rush of remembering. The farmhouse is full of years. It's known both joy and sorrow within its walls. It's known many voices, those of earlier generations who made the farm their home and means of livelihood, and younger generations who made it their summer home, their holiday house. Our niece's summer journey will take only an hour and a bit from Boston to the farm so they can come and go, but when their mother and I were little girls, it was a real trip, leading up to two months in the country. A very long time ago, everyone went away for the summer. At least, all our friends did, and during July and August, the part of Cambridge in which we lived became a deserted village. The annual exodus gave rise to much conversation among the children of the neighborhood. There was always a sharp discussion as to which was the better, New Hampshire or Vermont, while the advocates of Cape Cod were somewhat less fervent. Everyone went away by train. There was no discussion there because automobiles, while beginning to be considered seriously, were still unreliable. There was quite a violent discussion, however, as to whether the family dog should be crated or just tied in the baggage car. One little girl had told us her dog, Spot, had managed to jump out, leash and all. He was found later, she said, all dead and decayed. This consideration weighed heavily in favor of a crate. There were many things to be done to close our house before our own hegira could begin. O'Leary, the handyman, must beat all our rugs outdoors, and the rhythm and the sound of the beating was a special sound, and the camphor put between the rolled up rugs was a special smell. They meant summer to me and my sister Lucy. O'Leary's brawn was again called upon when it was time to bring the trunks down from the attic. The trunks stood in the upstairs hall for nearly a week, tops lifted, each reminding one of Jonah's whale. The packing was slowly done, but it was scientific. Dresses, skirts, and shirtwaists went in first. Then the odds and ends, belts and buckles, were fitted in neatly to the trays of the trunks. When the job was done, O'Leary had to be called upon again, 
this time with a helper, to take the full trunks from the second floor to the first. The express company stated that it was not its duty to do so. My mother thought this behavior was very uncooperative. The trunks gone meant that the next day the girls set forth. The girls, officially cook and second maid, were cousins, and it hadn't been many years since they'd sailed away from Ireland. They were a very jolly pair, and Lucy and I tagged after them whenever we could as they went about their chores. Finally, the family departed, the day after the girls had gone. There were five of us, my mother and father, Aunt Lorna, and Lucy and I. We were driven to Boston in a hired car. As we reached the North Station, Lucy and I grew very quiet. Our excitement was all inside, for it was such a frenzied place. There were horse-drawn delivery wagons, wheezing automobiles honking their horns, the bulbous kind, and lots of people rushing about as though they were all very late. The train shed was dark with smoke and smelled of soft coal. The constant clanging of the bells seemed a part of their mysterious switching and backing activity. A few trains had backed into the train shed and smoke went up outside the shed like fluffy white clouds against the summer sky. A red cap was quick to present himself and take any hand luggage. Only Lucy protested because a doll was in the little suitcase which she carried, so she thought she should be responsible for it. She clasped it to her chest and gave the red cap a rueful little smile. A parlor car porter stood outside the car in which we were to go. He wore his dark blue uniform with brass buttons, and when his passengers were aboard, he changed his coat for a crisp white one. The whole procedure of the parlor car doings would absorb us at first. The Pullman porter would bring each lady passenger a large paper bag to keep her hat free from soot. He would fasten a table between Lucy and me for our books and games. Pleased with attention, we would settle down for a while. Happily, the next event was lunch. There was no dining car, but the valiant porter prepared food in a tiny kitchen, and having set up tables like ours, he served each passenger with great aplomb. Father hovered over us as we chose our lunch, but we knew by heart what we wanted. There was a special ginger ale we'd had the year before. We wanted to have it again. It fizzed and tickled your nose. We always chose baked beans for our main dish and harlequin ice cream. We were sure, too, we would get a finger bowl with two peppermints and a little bag beside it. After lunch, crayons and games lost their appeal for Lucy and me. By now, we'd be looking out the windows at the broad hay fields. Here and there, a farmer would be cutting with his mowing machine pulled by a pair of sleepy-looking horses, lulled by the rhythm of the machine and the warm sun of the afternoon. We would also see at least one collie dog rounding up the cows. Nipping at their heels, we thought he looked as though he were laughing to himself. The three grown-ups across the aisle were talking busily, at least Mother and Aunt Lorna, while Father seemed to be dozing. Aunt Lorna was his sister, and no doubt he thought he'd heard her chatter often enough. Mother was saying how she wished John, her brother, would spend more time at the farm. After all, it was he who'd seen the old homestead was kept in the family, and he'd built a little house for Barney, who ran the farm. Aunt Lorna seemed very fond of John, and apparently thought it a shame he should remain a widower. I always wondered why grown-ups seemed so sly and secretive when a man and a lady liked each other, but once they were married, nobody talked about them anymore. 
Lucy didn't wonder yet about such things. She was mixed up about weddings, though. She'd blurted out in front of Uncle John and Aunt Lorna that if they got married, she would like to be the bride. She was very little when she said this, and the laughter of the grown-ups made her cry. Hot and disheveled, we'd now be anxious for the end of our journey. In spite of Mother's request that we sit still, we'd develop a terrible thirst, making many trips to the water cooler. The summer that Lucy was six and I was eight, we lost our fear of getting locked in the ladies' room. We found it a fascinating place. The green soap which shook out of a bottle on your hand and flushing the toilet we found very exhilarating, watching the land flash by through the hole. Then we spent many minutes watching our reflections sway in the long mirror on the door. As the train lurched around corners, we bumped into each other amidst gales of laughter, meant to cover up the interest we really felt in looking at ourselves. There stood, or tottered, Lucy, an inch or two shorter than I, in her blue and white checked train dress with a big bow on top of her soft brown hair, which fell in ringlets. Her very blue eyes were half closed and she was laughing so hard. I wore a dress somewhat like hers and a big bow on top of my head too. My eyes were blue, only darker, but all I ever thought about my appearance was to lament the freckles on my nose. Of course, Mother eventually appeared, pushing open the ladies' room door and saying, Millie, Lucy, what have you been doing? You've been in here for an age and your faces are still grimy. She smiled, though, and gave us each a pat on the head. Our giggles tapered off and we scrubbed diligently. Finally, the journey came to an end. The chug-chugging of the engine adopted a slower tempo. The whistle wailed to let those on the station platform know we were coming. The bell on the engine began to clang, and we'd arrived. There was a short motor ride still ahead of us. Mr. Kenlin, the local hardware store man, met us in his shiny new Knox. He drove us up to the farm. Up, up we went into the hilly country of northern Vermont. We could see the foothills of the Green Mountains and get a peek at Mount Mansfield and good old Camel's Hump. Lucy and I had renewed vigor by this time. We vied with each other to see which of us could see the little summer house that topped a hill in front of the farmhouse. Then. We were really there. The girls, Beatrice and Nora, had everything sparkling clean, and they seemed to be extra happy. Perhaps they'd discovered that Clifton Adams was back to help Mr. Barney. Clifton and a friend of his had taken them to a carnival last summer. Lucy and I threw our hats in the hall and made a beeline for the barn, curls flying in the breeze. We had to find out if Prince remembered us. He perked his ears as we came to his box stall and whinnied gently. That was enough for us. We put our arms around his neck and spoke to him. He felt so soft. Then we'd go to the loft to jump in the hay out of sheer exuberance. We'd have to look into the kitten situation tomorrow. There was always a fresh batch. We must also put off to tomorrow the exploration of the stone wall. Its cracks and crannies made rooms and tunnels which were the background for much make-believe. We hardly knew what we ate for supper. Mother said we were wound up like tops. It didn't take us long to unwind once we were in our beds between the crisply cleaned sheets. At first, we felt as though we were still moving. Chug, chug ran in our heads. Then from somewhere, way off in the twilight, a train whistle 
echoed through the hills. It was a lonely sound, and we were glad somehow that we could hear the hum of grown-ups' conversation from the porch below our windows. stone steps have grown cool to the touch. The damp of the twilight has drained away the warmth of the sun. The fireflies are drifting low over the fields. And far away, the wail of a train's whistle. A lonely sound echoes from across the valley, just as it had so many years ago when lying half asleep, Lucy and I found comfort in the murmur of family voices in the distance. I feel the same need come over me, but soon Bill will be back from the airport with envoys from the younger generation. They'll say, hi, what are you doing sitting out here in the dark? Bill will say, they were right on time. From a train ride away, your friend, Anna. Anna.